The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. We're thankful we get to read it and study it and grow from it this morning. So why don't we open in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you as uh, Pastor Scott prayed that and that we can worship you and enjoy you no matter where we are, Lord. Whether we are in a building or at a school or outside, whether we are with church family or at work or at play, that we can worship you and enjoy you, God. And so, Lord, pray as we turn to your word this morning, God, that you would open our hearts, Lord, that you would remind us of your great love for us in Christ, and that we would leave this place overjoyed with the good news of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and do it one more time. If you have an open seat, raise your hand so, so folks can sit down. Come on in and take a seat. If I told you that as a child, I visited Canada, the United Kingdom, France, Morocco, Japan, Italy, Germany, Norway, and Mexico, would you be impressed? Would I be cool? Would, could we be friends? What if I told you that I visited all of these countries in a single day? Now that's impressive, isn't it? That's really impressive. See, when I was a child, my parents took me to Epcot at Disney World. World showcase where there are all these little villages from all these different countries around the world. And in each of these little villages where are these countries, there are those buildings that represent what the, the country looks like back home. And so you go to Mexico and you see this pavilion that looks like a Mayan temple. You go to Japan and you see this towering pagoda. You go to France and you see this Eiffel Tower. You go to Norway and you see this Viking Lodge. You go to Germany and you see Wisconsin. And um, it's Oktoberfest year-round, just like Wisconsin. But in all of these little separate spaces, what you see is that the builders have gone through tremendous efforts to make the building reflect other buildings in a faraway place. You know, today as we gather here, it is a special Sunday as we praise God for this building and his provision of it. And today we want to ask this question. What building or location do we want this church to mirror? What, what location do we want this to reflect? To answer that question, we're going to turn to John chapter 4. You can do that. John chapter 4. It is page 888 in the Red Bible and page 1147 in the Children's Bible. As you know from John chapter 4, as many of you know, this is where we get our church name, Jacob's Well. The place we want to mirror ourselves, only does our name come from this chapter, but so does our mission statement. Our mission statement is life in Christ, Christ in life. And so this week, we're going to look at the first part of our mission statement, life in Christ, as we look at John 4, verses 1 through 26. And then next week, we're going to look at the second part of our mission statement, which is John 4, verse 27 through 42. And my hope is that we establish this Jacob's Well here in Howard, Wisconsin, that it would be a reflection of what took place at that Jacob's Well in John chapter 4. 
Now, just to give you a picture of where we are headed, we're looking at John 4 this week and next week, and then we're going to spend four weeks looking at Christmas praise through the Gospel of Luke, looking at four different characters who praise God for Christmas as we prepare to once again receive the birth of our Savior. And this year I am so excited because Christmas lands on a Sunday, which I'm so happy about because uh, what better way to celebrate Christmas than to join together with your church family and celebrate the Savior that God God has given to us. And so I'm so excited for that. As we head to the new year, we'll return to the book of Acts and continue that for the spring semester and continue to be blessed by it as we have been so far. But today, we're looking at the story of Jacob's well. And I know this story is probably very familiar to many of you. I've taught or preached on this probably 50 times. And so Jacob's well here on Lionville Road would reflect that Jacob's well there in Israel. And so let's start by reading verses 1 through 6 of John chapter 4. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus had been ministering in the region of Judea, and his ministry was growing rapidly. He was becoming wildly popular, and the Pharisees, a Jewish sect, knew this, and they were threatened by it. And so Jesus decides to take the show on the road. He decides to take his ministry and go up north to Galilee. Now you can see here in a map, maybe hopefully, If we have a map there, do we have a map? There we go. You can see in the southern region is Judea and up north is Galilee. And so Jesus wants to go from Judea up to Galilee. And in the middle is the region of Samaria. And the Jews did not like Samaria because Samaria was full of Samaritans. Samaritans so much is they would actually cross over to the other side of the Jordan River by Jericho, cross up the east side, go up the east side of the Jordan River, and then cross back over to get into Galilee just to avoid the Samaritans. Now, here's why they hated the Samaritans so much. They hated the Samaritans so much because the Samaritans were considered half-breeds. They were the product of marriages between Israelites, Jews, and the Assyrians who had conquered Israel in 722 BC. And so they were married to these, to, these foreign born, to these foreigners. And not only did they adopt a lot of their culture, they also adopt a lot of their worship, a lot of their religion. And so they had this mixed religion between Judaism and the Assyrian religion. And so they saw them as detestable, as unclean. A matter of fact, they hated them so much that they would actually not be, there was, there was rules that you could not use the same utensil as a Jew had used. Otherwise, you would be made unclean. That if your shadow touched their shadow, that you would be made unclean. And so they did all that they could to avoid the Samaritans. But Jesus, as we know, was no ordinary Jew. And he defies the racial prejudice of the day. And he goes through Samaria. And midway through his journey to Galilee, he comes to a well outside of Sychar called Jacob's Well. And he sits down to rest. And Jesus does the unthinkable. He talks to her. He asks her for help. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. 
Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan women said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now we see the surprise response of this woman. And again, she is surprised because she knows there is laws on the books that forbid a Jew to share a utensil with a Samaritan, that they would become ceremonially unclean. And what that means is that they would no longer be able to go into the temple to worship God. And they, they would have to go through purification rituals just in order to go back to the temple to worship the Lord. And so she is surprised by his ask. And Jesus responds to her in verse 10 saying, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now Jesus spends really the next 16 verses and the rest of his interaction unfolding this simple verse. And so as we look at John chapter 4 today, I want to really look at Wisconsin and the truths that Jesus reveals to this woman, I hope would take deep root in our own hearts. And so there are three things I want to look at today. One is the gift of life in Christ. Second, the goal of life in Christ. And thirdly, the giver of life in Christ. So let's start with the first, the gift of life in Christ. Verse 10 again. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, which can also mean active or running water like a, like a stream. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. All of us have been thirsty. All of us can appreciate how precious water is after a long journey. All of us can understand how Jesus must have so much wanted this water from the well to refresh. That well water was this woman. Because this woman was the one who had the bucket. Jesus had no bucket. But what the woman did not know is that Jesus was the one who had the power to provide a better water. A, a magical water of sorts. A living water. Jesus could offer water that did not just quench a person's physical thirst temporarily, but could quench a person's spiritual thirst eternally. And so he talks about this gift that he has to offer this living water. Now, what is this? Well, if you look just a few chapters later in John chapter 7, you can flip there if you want. In John chapter 7, in verse 37 through 39, Jesus is speaking at a feast, and we learn what this water is, what this living water, this gift of God is. John 7, 37 through 39 says this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his water will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds this commentary for us. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. 
For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so John tells us that the gift of God is the Trinity. It's the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus goes on to say this Holy Spirit, this gift of living water, wells up into eternal life, which is a quantity and a quality. It is a quantity in that it is eternal. It is a quality in that it is living, that you're now alive to God, and God is now alive to you. This is amazing gift that Jesus offers this woman when you consider the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. You know, the Holy Spirit, as part of the Trinity, created the heavens and the earth and everything we see. The Holy Spirit dwelt in the temple and the Holy of Holies. It was the most sacred place on earth. And only the high priest could go in there once a year and he would go at the, the, the peril of his own life, potentially. And yet what Jesus is telling this Samaritan woman is this awesome, holy, third person of the Trinity is now a gift from God to dwell in our hearts. I don't know if you have ever considered how scandalous and how absurd this is. That the Holy Spirit, which dwelt in the Holy of Holies, now dwells in the chief of sinners. This would have been unfathomable to this woman. It would have been unfathomable to the devout Jews. And really, it should be unfathomable to us. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. I won't make you raise your hand, but wow. In the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey has a sweetheart. And if you remember, uh, he says to her, Mary, he says, what is it you want, Mary? What do you want? He wants to give her a gift. What do you want, Mary? What do you want? You want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. And then Mary responds, she says, I'll take it. Then what? And George says, well, then you can swallow it and it will dissolve. You see, and the, uh, the moonbeams would shoot out your fingers and your toes and the ends of your hair. And he's kind of stammering. He goes, and I'm talking too much. Why does George stumble at this? Because George knows he is speaking nonsense. It does not matter how much money you have or how strong you are or how powerful you are. Nobody can lasso the moon. Nobody can bring it down, and certainly nobody can ingest it. And yet, the gift that Jesus has to offer, without any hesitation, is far greater than the moon. Jesus offers the creator of the moon, the creator of a thousand moons. The gift of God is not just something that God gives to us. The gift of God is God himself inside of us. Did you get that? Inside of us, through the third person of the Trinity. And so this is the gift of life in Christ. It is God in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And my prayer is that here together at Jacob's Well, we would experience and delight and marvel in this great gift of God. The second thing we want to look at is the goal of life in Christ. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I love this because this is, the woman is asking for the water that Jesus is telling her she should be asking for. But Jesus is very perceptive. He knows that she has a misunderstanding because she asked for water so she won't have to come to the well anymore to draw water. And so she's asking for physical water, 
right? She wants running water in her house. That's what she's looking for. And Jesus is perceptive. He knows that she has missed the point. And so he prods a little bit deeper to show her not only her physical thirst, but her spiritual thirst. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is culture. Imagine if you're from small town USA, and there was a woman like this, and she had this reputation. Maybe you're from small town, you knew a woman like this. Maybe under people's breath, they would call her the town tramp, right? The book of Hosea has a name for a woman like this, a whore. This was not a respectable woman in the culture. And this is actually why she came out during the noon hour. You see, it says that she came during the sixth hour, which is the noon hour. And she came during this time because she did not want to see any other people. She was ashamed of who she was and what she had done. And she knew the women came early in the morning. So she came at the noon hour, the heat of the day, to avoid all of the stares, all the shame that followed her around. Now, why does Jesus uncover this woman's shameful history? Is he trying to embarrass her? Is he trying to shame her? Well, of course not. Jesus is revealing something very important to her. Jesus is revealing that in futility, she has searched for life, that she has searched for love, that she has searched for satisfaction in all the wrong saviors. You see, Jesus is revealing that she was looking and wanting and thirsty but she had found no satisfaction. Jesus knew this woman went from man to man to man because her soul savior. And you know what? All of her efforts, all of her relationships with these substitute saviors, no matter how pleasurable they were for a time, no matter how promising they might have seen, all of them turned up empty for quenching the thirst of her soul. You know, friends, we may be tempted to look at this woman and look down upon her. Maybe you did growing up. We may look at her as this unclean, unworthy, and undisciplined person. But if we are honest, I think all of us can see that we are not that different than her. That all of our souls are thirsty. That we thirst for significance, for meaning. That we thirst for value. That we thirst for satisfaction. That we thirst for love. We all have substitute saviors that we run to, that we worship. We whore after things like romance and business success and food and sports and power and control and health and money. And the list goes on and on and on. And all of these are good things. All of these are good things that God has given to us. But when we look to them as our savior, we will always be thirsty. We cannot hide our sin from Jesus. In Basel, Switzerland, there's a carnival each year called the Faschnacht. I think that's how it's pronounced. And it's a lot like Mardi Gras. And so this time of the year, people live. Everyone knows what goes on there and they joke about it. But no one really knows who is doing what because people wear these masks during this festival. Well, during this time of year, the Salvation Army puts up posters. And on the poster, it says in German, Gott sieht hinter dein Mask which is simply translated, God sees behind the mask. Friends, Jesus is not 
the seed by our religious rituals. Jesus knows about our substitute saviors just as he did for this woman. He knows about our secret sins. He sees behind the mask and he is pursuing us to remind us that these always leave us thirsty, that they never satisfy our soul, that they are just temporary pleasures. Think Augustine put it best when he said, thou hast made us for thyself. And our hearts are restless, maybe you could put thirsty, until they find their rest in thee. Have you found rest for your soul? Have you found satisfaction for your soul? Jesus says, put away those substitute saviors that only give temporary pleasure. Come and drink and be satisfied. Now, as Jesus reveals this woman's sin, She does what most of us would do. She decides to change the subject. But she's going down further into the subject that Jesus is really trying to address. And it's the issue of worship. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, referring to the hour of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What does Jesus mean that we must worship him in spirit and truth? Well, let's break down those two. First, spirit. When Jesus says that we must worship him in spirit, it probably is not referring to the Holy Spirit. Rather, it's probably referring to the depth of our soul the heart of us, the, the, what's inside of us, the deep core of us, the foundation of us, that deep inside in our deepest spirit, we must worship God. And so worship is not simply giving money and listening to the preacher. Worship is something that happens deep within your soul, deep within your heart and overflows in those things. You see, here's the radical thing, that every person worships every second of every day. Did you know that? Did you know that you worship every second of every day? Your soul cannot not worship just as your lungs cannot not breathe. You worship every second of every day. The question isn't if you worship. The question is, what are you worshiping? And so Jesus here is not coming to tell her to stop worshiping. He's trying to replace what she has been worshiping with something greater. Jesus goes on to say that those who worship God must worship in truth. This woman was not only worshiping substitute saviors, but she was also wrongfully worshiping because she wasn't worshiping according to the Bible. You see, the Samaritans only believed the first five books of the Old Testament because book six and on told them that they were to go and worship in Jerusalem at the temple, and they didn't like that. And so they didn't want to create worship in their own image. They wanted to do it how they wanted to do it. They wanted to set God apart. And Jesus calls her to worship truthfully according to God's word. And so that's why in verse 22, Jesus says, you worship what? And so what does this have to do with the goal of life in Christ? 
Well, the goal of life in Christ is simply this. Right worship all the time. The goal of life in Christ is right worship. To worship God as he has intended us to worship him, both in his glory, for his glory, and for our enjoyment. I want to get a little bit heady for you. For those who are heady, you'll appreciate this. For those of you who aren't, you can strain with me to try to understand this. C.S. Lewis, in his reflection on the psalm, says this. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes our enjoyment. Let me say it again. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. C.S. Lewis goes on to give some illustrations of this. He says, for example, if you have a lover and you want to tell her how beautiful she is, you do that because not only does that express your praise of that person, but it actually completes your enjoyment of them, right? And he talks about, you know, if you have read a great book or if you heard a great joke, for you to hear that and to not share it with someone else is painful because it, because your praise not only expresses our enjoyment of something, catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. And commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Pastor John Piper simply calls this Christian hedonism, and he says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so this is what the goal of life in Christ is, to give God the worship that he is due, both for his glory and for our enjoyment of him. Finally, we look and we see the giver of the life in Christ. In John 4, we learn a lot about Jesus' identity. We learn that he is greater than the patriarchs, that he knows our deepest secret sins and saviors, that Jesus brings a worship composed of spirit and truth. But finally, Jesus makes what might be the most audacious claim of all. Look at verse 25 with me. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus' response is that he is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, now this may seem commonplace to us because we have said this for thousands and thousands of years. But remember, this woman and dozens of generations before her for thousands of years had eagerly been awaiting the coming of the Christ, the coming of the Messiah. Adam and Eve were waiting for the Christ when God came to them in Genesis 3.15 and said, a descendant of the woman will come and will crush the head of Satan. Abraham was waiting for the Christ as God came to him and said, a descendant of yours will come and bless all the nations. David was waiting for the Christ when God came to him and said, a descendant of yours will sit on my throne forever. The coming of Christ was anticipated and hoped for by all of Israel for thousands of years as God came to them time and time again and promised many, many times that God would send them a Messiah, that God would send them a Christ, that God would send them a Savior. And here lies Jesus, dirty, scruffy, smelly, homeless, needy, 
And he says, you know that Christ that everybody has been waiting for, for since the beginning of the world? It's this guy. It's me. How crazy is that? In 1989, a man in Adamstown, Pentafrank, and so he took it home with him and he started to disassemble the painting and take the painting off. And as he took the painting off, he noticed a document behind it. After investigation, he found out that it was one of the original copies of the Declaration of Independence. He went to sell it and he was hoping to get about $800,000 for it. Unfortunately, he only got $2.42 million for it. But something that came in such a lowly package, this old frame, this, this ugly painting, was a priceless gift and changed this man's life forever. You know, Jesus came in a lowly package, in a, um, <coughs> excuse me, in humble appearance. Jesus was born in the major. He was raised as a carpenter. He was homeless. He was needy. He was a traveler, and yet he claims to be the Christ, the Son of God. But that's not all. If you dig deeper into Jesus' response, when Jesus responds, you can see in the original Greek, he does not simply say, I am he, but he says, I am. Many of you know this is the name that God has given to himself in the Old Testament. When Moses comes to God in the burning bush, he says, who should I say sent me to Israel? God says, tell them the I am sent you. And so here, Jesus is not only claiming to be the Christ and the Messiah, hungry, thirsty, and smelly. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. The giver of life in Christ is our Trinitarian God, conceived by God the Father, accomplished by God the Son, and implanted in us through God the Holy Spirit. Let me end with this. Deuteronomy 31, 16 says this. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, which means he's about to die. Then this people, the people of God, will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them and the land that they are entering. How will they do this? They will forsake me and break my covenant I have made with them. And then he explains the consequences of this. The result, verse 17 says, then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. You know, if you have recognized today that you have chased after other idols, if you have whored after other things, Deuteronomy 31 tells us that God has no choice but to forsake you, that he must forsake you because he is bound by his word, that if he does not forsake you, it makes him a liar. Unless, of course, past week a bunch of guys took down the cross out front and they loaded it in my truck and I took it home and my son Caleb sanded the thing for like six hours with one of those belt sanders and uh, he was supervised by God, not by me, but he's a better dad than me, right? So it's okay. And, uh, and so he sanded it down and I brought it back and we, we hung it and it was amazing. No one got hurt. There was four of us in scaffolding kind of like this, and we got it up there, and uh, my request was to let me stain it, uh, something that I really wanted to do, and the guys obliged me, and so I got up there, and to be honest with you, it was a much more emotional experience than I thought it was going to be. 
If you've ever stained anything, you have this little bucket of, of liquid and you dip a cloth in there and then, you, and then you smear it on the wood, right? And so I'm dipping the cloth in the stain and I'm smearing it on the wood and the stain's getting on my hands and it's dripping down my arms. I'm just overwhelmed by the things that God is reminding me of. He's reminding me of when we started worship services back at Lindquist with Josh Brooke and a broken leg playing guitar with Pat Simpson. He's reminding me of the generosity of everybody who has come to get this place together. But more than anything, he's reminding me that 2,000 years ago, he stained another cross. Not with the stain that was purchased from a hardware store, but with the stain that cross. I asked Pastor Chad to play a country song called The Old Wooden Cross. And if it wasn't emotional enough, just put it over the top. (laughs) Just to read you a few lyrics. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Oh, that old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction to me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. And the old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine. I love that. It was stained with divine blood. A wondrous beauty I see. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to pardon and sanctify me. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Till my trophies at last I lay down, I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Friends, all of us, without exception, have whored after other gods, after other idols, each and every one of us. Of course, as I said, one is forsaken in your place, and this is the good news of the gospel. Do you remember what our Savior said when he was hanging on that old wooden rugged cross? Do you remember what he said as, as day became night? Do you remember that question that he asked? He asked this question. He cried out in a loud voice, and he asked this question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? And do you know what the answer to this question is? Do you know why God has forsaken his only son, his beloved treasure? Do you know why he forsook Jesus? Because he took on our whoredom. Because he was forsaken so that we would never have to be. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we can hear these great words of assurance from Hebrews 13, 5, in which God says to you, if you trust in Christ, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the delight of our souls. This is the joy that we live for. This is the satisfaction that we need. You know, as you look around the building, you may notice that we are still under construction. More wood has to be added up here. We need to get screens. The welcome centers need to get uh, covered with stone and other things. You know, this, this building, this building is a work in progress, right?
There we go. This building, this microphone, all of us are a work in progress. And my hope is that as we establish a home here at this church, that this Jacob's Well in Green Bay, Wisconsin, would mirror the glory of that Jacob's Well in John chapter 4, that we would come here Sunday after Sunday, that we would not simply come to a building, but that we would come to a Savior, that we would come to Jesus, that we would reveal all of our sin, all of our shame, and that we would once again experience the gift of life in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside us, that we would once again remember and live out the goal of life in Christ, which is worshiping God in spirit and truth for his glory and for our enjoyment of him, and that in growing measure, from now until the day we are called home, that together as a family, as Jacob's Well Church, we would grow in our love for the giver of life in Christ. Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water will never be thirsty again. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the old rugged cross. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him to save our souls, God. Lord, as we think about this building and we praise you for it, it is not our chief joy. We are so thankful for it. But we are thankful for you above all else. And we are thankful that you have come inside of us to delight our soul with your glory. Lord, as we turn to your table, may we be reminded of why you were forsaken upon the cross, that you were forsaken on our behalf, that we could live a life eternally with you, that you will never leave us or forsake us. May we live in the joy of your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We read in the scriptures that as Jesus is approaching his death when he will be forsaken by the Father, that he joins with the disciples and he takes bread and wine from the Passover feast and he takes bread and he gives it to the disciples and says, take, eat, this is my body. In the same way he takes a cup after supper and he gives it to him saying, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If you're here today and you confess that you have chased after other gods, if you believe that Christ has died on the cross, the gospel preaching church, and they have said, this is true, we see this, we affirm this in your life, this is for you, to nourish you in your faith, to nourish you in your love for Christ. If you're here today and that does not apply to you, we are so glad that you are here. And our hope is that you would find this life in Christ, which is so glorious, but we ask that you stay seated and take it one day with authenticity, with genuineness, with a true heart before God. Today we're going to administer the Lord's Supper a little bit differently. It might be a little bit clumsy as we're all figuring this out, but instead of distributing the trays, what we're going to do is we're actually going to have stations. We're going to have three up front and three out back. And during this song, Jessica's going to play, we want you to take time to meditate of the love of God in Christ for you. And when you're ready, please go and take the elements. Uh, when you get the elements, please bring them back to your seat. And uh, we'll partake together as one body, as the body of Christ, as is our custom. If you're here today and you have mobility issues, we'll try to make sure that we bring it to you. If we forget you, just please raise your hand. It's not intentional. Um, we would like to do that. And so um, we are going to kind of set up differently. And so be patient as we figure this out together. Uh, but get up during the song, take the elements, bring it back to your seat, and we'll partake together as one body, the body of Christ.
conviction. It emboldens God's people. And it proclaims God's victory for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, you tell us to come and to give thanks for all of the trials in our life. And so we come to give thanks for the adversities in our life, for the trials in our life, knowing that in those adversities, you are doing something beautiful. And Lord, we confess that often we do not see it that way. Often we seek to to, to run away from it as fast as possible. But God, pray that you would give us the audacious faith in the midst of the adversity to glorify you in all things. Lord, as we turn to your table, again, we are reminded that the adversity that you face on our behalf at the cross is what led to our salvation, and we praise you for that. God, pray as we take these elements that we be reminded of the great salvation that we have in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.